This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, uh, your host and the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations. And we're awfully glad you could join us again today. Well, joining me is attorney James Turner from the firm Huddleston Bolin in Huntington, West Virginia. Jim's been with the firm since 1989 and a litigation partner since 1997. His practice is devoted to trial and appellate work with a primary concentration on the defense of railroads in occupational injury, personal injury, and toxic tort litigation. Huddleston Bolin was recently named, this is quite interesting, the number one railroad law firm in the nation by the best lawyers in America. That's quite a feather in your cap, Jim. Welcome to Ringler Radio. Thanks for inviting me, Larry. Boy, I'd like to be uh, rated number one by somebody. That would be cool. (laughs) Well, listen, in the early 1990s, uh, railroad workers began alleging symptoms of what their lawyers call toxic encephalopathy. And these included claims of memory loss, depression, confusion, and cognitive dysfunction, which they claimed were caused by exposure to chemical solvents used on the railroads. Ultimately, scores of lawsuits were filed in northern West Virginia in which those railroad employees sought compensation from the railroad. So today on Ringler Radio, we're going to be discussing a groundbreaking railroad case, Carter et al. versus CSX Transportation, Inc. It's really a controversial solvent study and how a, uh, a judge's rulings in various Daubert hearings took center stage when it came to these cases. So, uh, Jim, while many of our listeners uh, may have heard about Daubert motions and Daubert hearings, for those who are unfamiliar with all of that, can you give us some background on the Daubert concept? Uh, Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals uh, is the United States Supreme Court case from the early 1990s uh, that was directed toward the admissibility of uh, medical evidence in trials, and uh, it has become adopted uh, by a number of states, including West Virginia. I believe the great majority of states have what amounts to a state law uh, Daubert companion. But it started out as a a federal case interpreting admissibility of evidence under uh, federal rule of evidence 702, and uh, it was in response to uh, growing concerns uh, that there was junk science uh, being liberally allowed into trials, uh, that the standards uh, of, of evidence, the hurdle, for example, that a plaintiff typically had to get over to get a novel scientific theory to a jury was pretty low. Mm-hmm. And there were uh, numerous examples of uh, kind of absurd uh, jury verdicts where the verdicts were very high, the uh, scientific theory was extremely novel, unproven, and yet juries were nonetheless allowed to, to, to uh, accept and consider that scientific evidence. And ultimately, the, the United States Supreme Court weighed in and uh, tried to uh, change the way in which uh, that kind of evidence could be uh, ultimately uh, transmitted to the jury. And uh, the, the, the primary feature was to make the judge the gatekeeper 
of this scientific evidence. And uh, for those who try cases, uh, you often run into judges who, who tend to be quite passive and let just about anything get to the jury with the idea, oh, they'll sort it out. Right. That's what juries are intended to do. But uh, frequently you see juries go uh, in, in an extremely wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And so Daubert um, essentially uh, establishes criteria for the admissibility of that evidence with the judge being the gatekeeper. And that judge is supposed to make uh, you know, these initial determinations about admissibility ba- based on a number of criteria. Well, and, and ultimately, the, uh, the effect of these so-called Daubert hearings that the judge holds, uh, oftentimes, uh, witnesses, expert witnesses are eliminated. They're, they're not permitted to testify based upon uh, some determination by the judge. Is that right? That's right. And, and that's the classic way that uh, a lawyer, a defense lawyer, typically would, would believe he or she has a Daubert issue. It comes from the opposing expert. And that's typically the way in which Daubert gets employed, directed toward an expert and that expert's methodology. And, and a core principle underlying Daubert is uh, reliability, methodologic reliability. Mm-hmm. And so uh, does, is that expert engaging in good science? Does, is that science as objectively as science can do it, is it reliable? Is it, the, is it relying on the, the, good, uh, the good methods uh, that, that science recognizes? And typically that's the way that gets employed. So, uh, you know, Dr. Smith, an expert offered by the plaintiff, has an opinion that an exposure causes a condition. And if the lawyer, through discovery, believes that that expert's opinion is not properly supported, then, then you'll have a Daubert motion. And uh, the focus is then on that expert and how, you know, the opinion he has uh, mm-hmm. has it been subjected to peer review and publication. Do we know the error rate? Do the techniques uh, that have, have been employed are, are they uh, of sufficient rigor? What what is different, and I know we'll be turning to it, is the Daubert event that we're talking about right. did not focus on a single expert. It focused on an entire scientific hypothesis. Well, let's and let's take us in that direction. Uh, but before we do, you know, what, what we're really saying here, though, is that in these Daubert hearings, I mean, the judge, he, that judge has to be listening now to uh, contrary medical and technical and scientific evidence being presented. That judge has to have his or her act together to be able to somehow come to a decision as to how that hearing is going to be uh, played out. I mean, that, that puts a little bit of an onus on those judges to be really up to speed on some of the scientific stuff, doesn't it? It really does, and it's really pointless to have the hearing if the judge does not uh, have enough time to do it properly or, or enough interest. Exactly. Uh, and where I said before how in the pre-Daubert era, judges could just uh, you know kick things to juries, allow pretty much anything to pass. Uh, they could still essentially do that by refusing to have a Daubert hearing. But I have found that uh, in practice in, in West Virginia and Kentucky, where I spend most of my time, that, that judges are receptive to that. But but you're right. The, the challenge is, is to get a judge really interested, who takes it seriously, and who's going to give you the time you need, because it's not a short matter to put an entire scientific hypothesis right. uh, you know, on trial, so to speak, in a Daubert hearing. It's not half an hour. It may be two, two days. I, could, I, can, I can imagine. I can imagine. Now, let me ask you this. Would the refusal of the judge to grant a Daubert hearing be grounds for appeal? Well, the, the way 
it kind of gets gets wrapped up into, in my view, a motion for summary judgment. That mm-hmm. is, that there's no genuine issue of material fact, Your Honor, because this scientific hypothesis is unproven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't believe um, that simply refusing to hold the hearing mm-hmm. uh, is going to be grounds for an appeal. But a good lawyer, you, know, you need to protect your record on that and make, mm-hmm. make the judge very uh, make the judge aware at the beginning that you have a Daubert issue. And then if you don't get your hearing, um, make sure that your summary judgment motion itself is grounded on Daubert and that when you uh, either are directing your own witnesses or cross-examining the plaintiff's witnesses, that you're setting up that record that you can argue to the judge that summary judgment's uh, appropriate under Rule 56, but also under Daubert, uh, because the case wasn't made uh, that the hypothesis is grounded on good science. Absolutely. Well, let's let's talk now about the Carter case specifically, because that's, your, that's really your area of expertise here. And in a nutshell, you were defending the railroads. And while railroad workers were allegedly experiencing symptoms as a result of these chemical solvents used on, you know, in, in the railroad work they were doing... Uh, this case arose. Now, take us back to Carter versus CSX, and how did Darbert come into play in that particular case as you as you proceeded? All right, we have to go all the way back uh, to the mid 1990s, and at that point, um, a plaintiff's law firm filed. Uh, I think it would have been dozens of lawsuits Mm -hmm. alleging essentially this hypothesis that uh, long-term, low-level exposure to chemical solvents in a workplace uh, caused brain damage for these railroad workers. Uh, Some listeners may want to know, well, why why don't they have workers' compensation claims? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the short uh, answer is that uh, railroad workers don't have workers' compensation. Uh, They have a federal uh, law called the Federal Employers' Liability Act, which is essentially a common law negligence standard with some different features um, that allows them to directly sue their employer. And they're one of only, I think, a couple uh, jobs or, or uh, types of employment in America in which comp does not apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's an, it's an artifact, really, of the pre-workers' comp days. So these gentlemen all filed personal injury cases, is a good way to think about yeah, it. Yeah, they're FELA claims. As FELA called. claims, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Alleging that... Um, their exposure to solvents caused brain damage. So um, Daubert was only a couple of years old at that time, and um, the railroad decided that uh, they would uh, move the court for a Daubert hearing. And the cases were assigned to Judge Arthur Recht, R-E-C-H-T, who is uh, a judge uh, in a couple counties, but Wheeling, West Virginia, which is Ohio County, which is where we've always encountered him in these cases. And he agreed to have that hearing. And so in 1997, we had a Daubert hearing, and in that hearing, um, as we'll turn to, uh, was revisited a couple times. But the central uh, question that the judge was directing himself to, and 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 the advocates to, was was really the following: uh, Does low-level exposure uh, to solvents in an occupational setting cause irreversible brain damage. And in our cases, the plaintiff's lawyers called that brain damage toxic encephalopathy, which really means sick brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we had the hearing, and, and that's uh, that that was that first step. And, and that was 1997. 1997. And uh, it is, at least when the pleading started and the hearing itself was 97, 98 uh, in well, that period. Well, here's the interesting thing, that Judge Recht denied the motion, that first Daubert hearing motion, uh, really found for the plaintiffs, in essence, and said, 
uh, fierce debate among competing professionals while there was fierce debate, there's sufficient scientific knowledge to support the hypothesis. So that was uh, kind of a blow, wasn't it, to the defendants? Well, it's a blow, and you're right. Uh, that that's a you know a loss for the defendant on that is a victory for the plaintiffs. And 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 just real quickly, how, how that hearing uh, happened, uh, both sides, because the railroad was the moving party, uh, you know, put up experts, and we put up uh, neurologists and. I believe epidemiologists at the time to talk about all the studies that were out there. Uh, uh, must remember there was a lot of literature uh, out there. That is a lot of scientific literature professing or claiming that this was a real condition. So uh, we we uh, went up there and had experts to uh, try to debunk that, and the plaintiffs responded with their own experts. And that's that fierce debate that the court's talking about. They mm-hmm. went at it in a very professional way, but very dug in and entrenched positions on either side, uh, such that my interpretation is that the judge didn't feel that in his gatekeeping capacity he could he could break that tie or forge that gap in a way that was to the benefit of the railroad at that time. Well, what I find interesting is that even after a number of uh, defense verdicts in some of these cases where where the defendants were actually winning, the scientific hypothesis issue kept coming up. And uh, Judge Judge Recht ordered another Daubert hearing, I think, and in, in, wasn't it in 2004, but yet ultimately chose to stick with that 1997 judgment, really, which favored the plaintiffs again. So what kept you fighting on? How come you were so persistent here? Well, it, it was... Um uh, you know, it's hard to go back and, and remember, but I remember always, <laughs> always staying optimistic because yeah. we kept winning these cases. And I think that's a, an important point uh, that you make, Larry. Uh, you know, the judge, yes, he ruled for the plaintiffs, but all that meant was it, didn't, it did not mean that the plaintiffs prevailed on the question of whether the hypothesis was satisfied. By denying our Daubert motion in 97, 98, it simply meant that it goes to the jury. So that's what we did multiple times between... 98 and 2003, we went to the jury. So the jury was really sorting out these issues. Right. You know, the, the judge wasn't determining it in your favor, but the jury, as they heard all this evidence, was basically agreeing with you. Well, that's right. The judge in his gatekeeper fa- in his gatekeeper function said, yes, the jury may hear this. I have tested it. It is, it is enough for admissibility. But he's still engaged, and we're still moving for summary judgment uh, at the close of the plaintiff's evidence and at the close of all evidence in each one of those trials saying, Judge, this isn't good enough. And the judge, you know, every time would deny the motion after listening, and and it would go to the jury, and they would return with defense verdicts, saying, essentially, you know, we agree with the railroad. And so um, it it was following one of those cases where the judge had heard for, you know, I don't know how many, maybe the fourth or fifth time, the plaintiff's story. And for the fourth or fifth time, the jury rejected it. Uh, Judge Rex said, Essentially, uh, six years or so has passed since the last uh, hearing. Um, let's have another since the last Albert hearing. Mm-hmm. Let's try it again. Let's see what's new. And that, that was the sort of our mantra going forward was to talk to Judge Recht about what's new. Mm-hmm. And what, let's talk about the literature upon which this theory was all based. Was, was this, you know, obviously you think it was flawed, and yet somehow the judge considered it reliable in some ways. How? How was that all sorted out? What was the science around all that? Well, I think it's going to come back to to something that that, that certainly became featured in 2004 and and then in our last hearing, which was, yes, it's the literature, but it's also the way that science 
um, addresses the scientific literature or the the epidemiology. That is, what is the standard? Because on almost any hypothesis, you can find articles saying just about anything. They are certainly not of equal quality, but... um, the science was out there on this topic from the late 1960s, most of it from Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, my perception of why that is is that the Scandinavian countries, uh, very uh, liberal social democracies with mm-hmm. um, kind of almost a social nanny states where if people have a disability of any sort, then they get uh, benefits and that sort of thing. Uh, there's a, a real strong push in many of those countries, or at least there was, to um, see whether or not in in every single occupation there may be something going on so that a a disability could be awarded. And so long way of saying that there was a vast amount of bad science Mm -hmm. coming out of these countries. The reason I say it's bad, because almost none of the science, almost none, was coming from the scientific discipline that is devoted to brain damage, neurology. Mm -hmm. Almost all of it, without exception, was coming from occupational or industrial medicine, which is certainly uh, a real specialty. But it's one that, um, at least in in my judgment and in this kind of context, is is of of less rigor than uh, the neurologists employ when testing neurologic hypotheses. And there was a lot of, of sloppiness, frankly, in these Scandinavian papers, for example, not knowing what the dose of exposure was, mm-hmm. not even really being able to define what the disease outcome was, just more describing it. Uh, well, these are people who seem to be confused. These are people um, who may have some, some problems thinking. Their, their, their uh, executive thinking uh, may be a little off, but, but there was no, nothing really there. There was nothing really objective. So much of it was based on paper and pencil tests called neuropsychological tests, and, uh, and there were the, some of the other flaws included. Some of the papers, the, there were a lot of alcoholics that were included in the studies. They weren't pulled out. Mm-hmm. So th- those are things that are called confounders. There, were bi- there was bias uh, in many of these papers, and so while there was a lot of it, uh, our position was that a lot of it was junk. And so what we had to convince the court was, let's, let's think about what's new in science, about how science evaluates the, the literature. And it should not be weight of evidence. That is, oh, there's a big pile, figuratively, a big pile of literature on one side of the question that says yes, yeah. and there's a smaller pile that says no, that the scales tip, and the big pile yeah. wins. Quantity is not going to out, uh, shouldn't outdo uh, qu- quality here. Well, in that's this right. You, you may have a big pile, but it may be a big pile of garbage. Right. And if it's a big pile of garbage, the bigger it gets, the worse it is. So, well, that's that's right. But you know, again, this fl- you've brought up these issues at each of these Daubert hearings, I would assume, and yet the judge, even though they were alcoholics and other flawed, biased uh, elements of these studies, somehow the judge wasn't willing to come your way until. 2009 until this year. So let's talk about this year and what's come down the pike this year that's maybe changed the uh, the horizon. Very good. What what happened uh, in, in just a real quick uh, back reference to 04, why I think we lost it there, we told the judge there uh, that we needed to engage in an evidence-based review that is weighting these papers by their study design and only considering those papers uh, that were 
uh, cohort studies or case control studies, those kinds of things. The judge didn't go our way, as you point out. Right. Why that didn't happen, I think, is because the plaintiffs at that time said, Judge, there's a study ongoing right now that's not published, and it's ongoing in West Virginia. It's funded by the federal government, by researchers at West Virginia University. And though they were not explicit with this, I think the message they were sending to the court was, you don't want to be that judge that throws this out right before right. This, the, the seminal study gets published that would have established um, the good science credentials of the hypothesis. And so the judge did pass. As before, we tried more cases. We won more cases. The judge then says, well, let's have a final hearing in 2008 and 2009 because we had finally gotten our hands around, with some help from Judge Recht, that study that the plaintiffs were foreshadowing in 2004. It got published in 2006. And it did involve railroad workers. It involved some railroad workers that most likely had actually been litigants mm -hmm. uh, in in these cases, and certainly many who had been litigants um, uh, in cases that perhaps did not try. Because this was in West Virginia, and I'm in West Virginia, uh, we subpoenaed that data. And and just a real real brief statement about what that study was, because I think it's important. That study professed to show on MRI films that exposed workers had a smaller uh, uh, um, part of their brain called the corpus callosum, a white matter structure in the brain. The, the study said that the exposed workers had a smaller corpus callosum when compared to a control group, and that that must be the expression of the damage caused by solvent exposure. These solvents um, are called demyelinating uh, mm -hmm. uh, solvents. What they do is they attack fat. And so the idea was that a white matter, white matter in the brain is fat, that if there's a big white matter structure that, that has less of it, then perhaps that's the, the smoking gun. There, we've seen it now. Mm -hmm. This isn't a neuropsychological paper and pen test. This is objective evidence that that feature of the brain is smaller in railroad workers alleged to be exposed to solvents than a control group. So we subpoenaed that MRI data, and, the, and, and they fought that. They didn't want to give us the data. The West Virginia Attorney General's office stepped in and tried to prevent it. Mm -hmm. uh, but Judge Recht properly ruled that we were entitled to the data. Uh, we may talk about this in a moment, but that uh, study was funded by NIOSH. And NIOSH has a strong proclivity for wanting its data, which is taxpayer data, mm -hmm. taxpayer-funded data, to be reviewed by good researchers. You get more bang for your tax dollar that way. Well, you had, you had the testimony of two uh, neurologists that I think were very critical in the, in the case. Tell, tell us about that, where you had uh, uh, two neurologists, I think University of Michigan neurologists that came in and, uh, and helped your cause. We did. We uh, Dr. James Albers is a neurologist at the University of Michigan, and we had used him in Daubert hearings, both Daubert hearings in the past. Uh, this one made the third, uh, and also as a testifying witness in many of our trials. He's, a, he's an exceptional scientist and uh, also published in the literature on this hypothesis himself. In fact, he's one of the first uh, that... that um, uh, one of the first to really uh, hone in on this in the United States. Uh, and so we had him, and he really gave us uh, and, and, uh, the evidence-based medicine approach and helped us ask the right questions, both of the plaintiff's experts and of him, about that and, and how this literature falls out when you employ the right kind of rigor in analysis. And then we had Dr. Kirk Fry, 
is also a neurologist and has uh, he's a neuro uh, not a neuroradiologist but he has uh, he's a nuclear medicine specialist he has a, a whole host of credentials as does Dr. Albers he's the one Dr. Fry who spearheaded the review of that MRI data from that study and and he's the one who testified in our 2008 hearing date in Daubert that once the these data had been looked at in a more sophisticated, more cutting-edge, more good science fashion, that this alleged difference in the corpus callosum was just that. It was alleged. It mm-hmm. wasn't real. It fell out. That, in fact, the brains of the railroad workers were uh, normal when compared to those of the of the group. And I think that was an enormously powerful a piece of evidence. Well, it obviously was to Judge Reck because in May of this year he came out with a uh, a different ruling than he had in the past. And and how did that uh, how, did that surprise you for first of all? And how how did that uh, how did that come out? You always feel hopeful, and I felt very good about how how the hearing itself went. And that's really all you can gauge and uh, have a lot of r- respect for Judge Reck and the approach that he's taken. I mean, even when we'd lost in the past, it was never that we felt we didn't get a good hearing or that something had gone wrong. It was just simply that we have a strong burden, no question about that, uh, and that we hadn't met it. I felt like we had met it. Uh, I'd been wrong before. Uh, This time I felt really good about it. And, uh, yeah, he uh, he ultimately issued that ruling in May, which uh, is just a wonderful read uh, that I will – uh, be happy to uh, <laughs> uh, share with anybody. It's it's in, it's in the the public materials. We'll talk, no- we'll talk about that at the end of the show, well, where you you can uh, give, give people an opportunity to get that. But you know, I have to say before we take a break, I have to say that you have to give a lot of credit to Judge Reck because here's a judge who who basically ruled one way several times, and it, it takes a pretty good judge to be able to now see some differences and go the other way. Well, you're right, and we, we often think in terms of stereotypes about jurisdictions. West Virginia has been uh, many times labeled a judicial hellhole. Uh, that part of West Virginia in particular, the northern panhandle, has been isolated uh, for that kind of um, label in the past, and I've, I've never agreed with that. I, there are good judges there, very good, and um, it was not a surprise to me at all that we got the kind of attention and uh, the serious approach that we got with Judge Recht. I, I guess it, it really is amazing that he, uh, on one level, stuck with it for what amounts to uh, 12 years. Uh, that's yeah. certainly atypical. Well, that's terrific, you know, but some people may call West Virginia a hellhole, Jim, but I call it West by God, Virginia. As as do I. There you go. Well, let's take a quick break, and uh, let's come back in a minute with Attorney Jim Turner, and we'll uh, get a little more into this Daubert uh, hearing on this uh, very interesting case. This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975... Wrangler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. This is Ringler Radio. Celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you could download Ringler Radio to your iPod? 
Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Well, welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and today joined by attorney Jim Turner from Huddleston Bolin in Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, Jim, let's talk a little bit about this case uh, in this fashion. It's taken you on a roller coaster ride. I mean, you've been, you've been with this case for over, I guess, a decade of litigation. Uh, what is the current status of the, of the case right now? I know there have been hearings back and forth. You've lost some. Now you've won one. What's the, what's the status of the case? Well, the cases are composed uh, really of a handful of plaintiffs sure. now, and those cases are still there. Uh, the, the order was not a summary judgment order, but uh, don't, my personal belief is those cases are uh, not able to go forward uh, if they can't put up the evidence of the hypothesis. So I imagine that there will be other procedural things that will be done here within the next year to address that. And do the plaintiffs, do you, do you su- suggest that they're going to appeal any of these? Uh, in other words, have another Daubert hearing to kind of try to contradict what Judge Recht has already done? Well, that that's an extremely important question. I just I don't have the answer to that. I don't have um, any insight. Uh, I, I guess not, they're searching for scientists right now that can help them. You know, I, I think I think there's <laughs> something to that. There you go. Well, so this could be a precedent-setting case uh, when all is said and done, and uh, and be be read about uh, in the books for for years to come. I would assume. Well, I think that the. The order itself is very long and very detailed and can give great guidance to other courts that are contending with a scientific hypothesis and Daubert. Well, that's terrific. Well, listen, I also want to congratulate you again on uh, having your firm uh, ranked number one, uh, the number one railroad firm. Uh, how did you How did you get that ranking like that? I don't know. Uh, there, there are these different ranking organizations that I think in this uh, age of the Internet, it's easier to... Uh, really evaluate law firms, uh, and that's not the way it used to be, and I, we, we handle more railroad cases, I think, than any firm in America, and I think that um, uh, we have a lot of very good lawyers here. And Well, you're, uh, being, you're being modest because I think this particular case and the work you did on it, I'm sure, had a lot to do with that, uh, that ranking, because uh, precedent setting and you, the persistence you had uh, to, to keep the fight going when it uh, looked like it kept going against you was uh, quite extraordinary. So I congratulate you on that. Well, thanks, Larry. Well, listen, uh, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, Jim, and uh, you, you mentioned uh, some articles you might want to even uh, pass on to them, how would they get in touch with you? I, I think the easiest is uh, simply uh, email me uh, at jturner, first letter, last name, jturner, at huddlestonbolin.com. Great. And uh, what about uh, a phone number if somebody's uh, not quite into the Internet? Sure. 304 691 8304. Well, Jim, I want to thank you again for joining us and to all of our guests out there and our, our listeners. Uh, please remember you can download any of these uh, Ringler Radio shows from the internet, uh, ringlerassociates.com or thelegaltalknetwork.com. Also, you can uh, download them from iTunes right onto your iPod and listen as you're jogging around the park. Uh, you can hear Jim uh, any time of day. So, uh, with all of that, Jim, I want to thank you again for joining us and for all of you out there. Thanks for listening. Now go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. 
Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential.